Uh, welcome, everybody. This is our content and data platforms at Vivo presentation. Uh, today, we're going to tell you a story about rebuilding and scaling uh, some of our services uh, from zero uh, in a year. The, the very important part is in a year. I think we got a lot of stuff done in just one year with very little development resources. Uh, just a little bit about us, in case you're wondering who the heck, who the heck are these guys. Uh, my name is Miguel Alvarado. I am Vice President of Data and Analytics at Vivo. And this is... Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Alan Zavari. I'm a senior engineer at uh, Vivo uh, Content Services. I'm a back-end engineer and mostly do serverless stuff. And there's our contact information. There's our social uh, media information as well as email address if you want to contact us at any given point in time. So this is what to expect from the session. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Vivo. For those of you who don't know what Vivo is, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about engineering within Vivo. Um, and then Alan is going to talk uh, to you guys about content services of Vivo. I'm going to go through what are content services, what it has taken to rebuild content services, and how Lambdas fit into this whole re-architecture picture. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about data services. Also, I'm going to talk about what data services are. I'm uh, going to talk about building a whole data platform from scratch in about a year. Um, and then uh, we're going to also talk about how Kinesis fits into the data services picture and how it is kind of like the, the central nervous system for data within Vivo. So what is Vivo? So Vivo is the world's leading all-premium music video and entertainment platform. We do about 19 billion video views a month. That's a big number. This is worldwide throughout all of our properties, including our syndication partners as well. Uh, we deliver a personalized and curated experience that allows people to explore and discover music videos, original programming, because we produce our own original programming as well. Very little people know that, actually. Um, and also live performances by artists that people love. We deliver these experiences in mobile, web, as well as connected televisions. So I want to talk a little about the scale of Vivo so you can wrap your head around you know, what our world looks like, more or less. So I already talked about our monthly video views. This slide is a little outdated, but it's more like 19 billion a month. Um, on the first half of this year, we streamed about 900 million hours of video. That is 51% more from the previous year. So it's a, it's a big increase. Uh, and I don't have the numbers of how we're looking as we close the year, but I, it, I believe that we've gone up about 70% overall for the entire year compared to the previous year. Um, one interesting thing about videos, music videos that we found is that it's a much more social medium than audio. People tend to share music videos twice as much than they share audio tracks on social networks. Um, we have reached about 25 million unique viewers a day. Uh, we have about 400 million unique viewers a month. To put it in contrast, the US population is about 340 million people. So it's a big, big, big audience that we're dealing with. Um, here's an interesting uh, information piece. So if Rihanna was a TV show, that would be a little bit weird if she was a TV show. Imagine you wake up one day, oh, crap, I'm a TV show. Anyway, if Rihanna was a TV show, uh, the week of the premiere for her video work, she would have come in number two right below the Oscars and right above The Walking Dead. So. Uh, you know, that's, that, those, those are big numbers. She had about 8.8 .8 video views, uh, 8.8 .8 million video views in that week of the premiere. 
Another similar data point that just kind of illustrates how pervasive music video has become. So Justin Bieber, when he put out his baby video, uh, it took him about four years to reach uh, one billion views. In contrast, fast forward to Adele's Hello release, it took her only 88 days to reach the same amount of views. So you can see how over time, music videos are becoming more and more popular. So Vivo has been going through this reinvention. Uh, before 2015, this is how Vivo looked like. We had a very noisy, loud brand. Uh, it was a little bit confusing. It was very in your face. Uh, and so we've been transforming the entire company, the entire product. We've been redesigning all of our products. And that also includes our brand. So now we have a much more sober brand. And now we're all about putting our name to the side and putting the artists uh, at, the front, at the forefront. So let's talk a little bit about engineering at Vivo. Um, there's kind of like two phases of engineering at Vivo. Before the reinvention, engineering 1.0, and then post-reinvention, engineering 2.0. So uh, our CTO, Alex Nunes, who joined Vivo last year, he's done a fantastic job at just kind of rebuilding the entire product and engineering organizations along with uh, Mark Hall, our head of product. So um, the old world looked like this. We had a hybrid hosting infrastructure. Uh, we used Rackspace and AWS together. We had these big, big, heavy mega services. Uh, and believe it or not, most of the code bases were in .NET. Uh, there was no continuous delivery, and there were no tests. And loads and loads and loads of technical debt. It made, the technical debt came because the organization was very reactive. People were moving, reacting to what the business wanted without proper planning and proper engineering practices. So now Vivo Engineering 2.0, this is what it looks like. We're 100% on AWS, and we're using Kubernetes as well. Uh, we use containers. Everything we run, production, is running in Docker containers. Um, now we have a microservices and nanoservices uh, architecture. And now we have a heterogeneous environment. We support various languages. We don't believe in that one language is the best for everything. We believe, we have the philosophy that you just gotta pick the best language for the problem that you have at hand. So the languages that we support today are Go, Scala, Java, um, and Node.js. Now we have proper continuous delivery systems and pipelines, so every little piece of code that we ever deploy goes through our continuous delivery pipelines. We have a more test-driven uh, process. We also have a more behavior-driven process in place. Uh, we've rewritten most of our stacks. Uh, and yes, we're hiring, so if anything sounds interesting to you guys after this presentation, come talk to us. So now I'm going to pass it over to Alan. Thank you. So uh, during the course of this uh, presentation, I'm going to refer to content services. So before we talk about them, let's see uh, what content services is. Uh, so whenever you watch a music video, let's say Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, Taylor Swift, Adele, or your favorite artist, regardless of uh, where you watch this, on your mobile phone, on your TV, on your computer, doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if you watch it on YouTube or on Vivo. This has brought to you by content services. So uh, what we do actually, we uh, deliver video to the audience. So that's the responsibility of our team. <clears throat> and uh, this includes some uh, things like metadata, and video ingestion, video encoding, uh, enriching metadata, and publishing to different uh, 
providers like YouTube, for example, and uh, providing some APIs for other teams and other client platforms to use them, use this metadata. And uh, data. All right, so I'm just going to define what data services are within Vivo real quick. So there's context. So the data services in Vivo are the collection of services and infrastructure that encompasses the Vivo data platform. There's kind of like two Uber goals or two Uber things that the data platform covers. One is it powers smart consumer experiences in the form of personalization and recommendations, but it also provides analytics to all of our business and product groups so we can uh, make data-driven decisions. Uh, the data services team is composed by platform engineers as well as data scientists. Back to Alan. Okay, uh, so this part of this presentation is about content services and how we re-architected the old architecture. So I'm going to talk about uh, what this old architecture was and uh, compare it with the new architecture and tell you how the story of how we migrated from the old one to the new one. So uh, our old architecture is a actually was a giant monolithic service which was uh, responsible for everything you can think of. Authentication, serving metadata, searching metadata, and uh, playlists, even recommendation. They were all served from the same service. And you can imagine if something goes wrong with the service, all these things go down together, and that's bad. It was written uh, in uh, .NET, and SQL Server, and uh, you can see how it looked like, uh, the simplified version of uh, our old architecture. So as you can see, lots of arrows and dependencies are there, and components are tightly coupled, and they are dependent on each other. And also you can see there, there is a relational database as a central place. Everybody's kind of connected to that database, and they're all using the same thing same database. And uh, at the end of the day, we have artists and video, which uh, provides API, metadata APIs for the clients to, to, to use them. And when I refer to metadata, let me ex explain what metadata is. So when you watch a video, video has some uh, uh, specification. For example, it has a title, it has a start date, it has a main artist, it has a genre, these are the things that we call them uh, metadata. And uh, so this was the old architecture, and uh, this is how we created the new architecture. Uh, we tried to break that giant service into uh, different microservices, which are independent. So we created uh, different independent microservices who are not talking to each other directly, uh, instead, they're talking uh, through their Kinesis stream. So every microservice has a Kinesis stream of its own, and it writes events to that stream. And if it wants something from other services, other microservices, it just uh, consume or listens to their uh, stream and uh, consume whatever they want. So it's kind of asynchronous. No direct API calls between microservices. And these streams are kind of uh, real-time. And also, every stream has its own uh, JSON schema. So not everything can go on the stream, just a specific schema for every stream. And uh, 
as you can imagine, uh, this is very cost effective because of its nature of microservices. So every microservice has its own database to consume as many, as much resources as they need. And uh, because of that, we saved uh, some money here. Also, these microservices are uh, uh, mostly serverless and created with Lambda and API Gateway. So uh, we save uh, some dollars there as well. And uh, we also uh, created continuous delivery for this new architecture. So I'm going to show you how uh, these components are working together. This is the overview of uh, our new architecture. And uh, as you can see, that the orange tiles are uh, microservices that I'm talking about. And uh, those uh, horizontal lines, green and blue, are the streams. So every microservice pretty much talks to one or maybe more streams. One of these streams uh, is their own stream, so they are owner of one stream at least. And uh, they are communicating with the Kinesis streams. Uh, I'm not going to talk about every uh, one of these services, but uh, a general overview is that uh, so the, we ingest the video, the video metadata passes uh, to the stream, and uh, another service just validate the metadata. Another service enriches metadata, for example, adds more information to this, gathers from, uh, which gathers from different resources, enriches it, and then uh, publishes it. Uh, another method, another service, and uh, so they do their own job as a kind of uh, workflow-like system, asynchronously. And uh, the beginning of this uh, new architecture, the entry point is uh, those blue uh, streams, artists and video raw. So, uh, but uh, as you can imagine, it was not. Uh, very easy to create such architecture from that one. So it was challenging. Uh, one of the challenges was uh, that uh, the old system was in place and working in production. So we couldn't just turn it off. We needed to gradually switch to the uh, new system from the old system. And this old system uh, was evolving. So, And uh, of course, you can never, even if it's 100% complete, you can't just uh, switch to the new uh, system over the night. It needs to be uh, gradual. And uh, one of the things that we didn't want to do was changing the old uh, code base, the .NET code base. That was a big no-no for us. So we didn't want to touch the old code, and we, didn't, we wanted to kind of connect these two uh, worlds uh, somehow. Why? Because we wanted to test the new service. So the new architecture needed some live data. We needed somehow to read the data, uh, live data from the old system and push it to the new system. So uh, to do that, uh, we uh, introduced a project called uh, Mexit, which was acting as a bridge between these two worlds. And uh, it's basically a lambda, and a set of lambda to be accurate and uh, runs on a recurring basis, like a scheduled task every five minutes, and uh, reads changes from the old system. So if metadata changes or uh, if we have a new metadata, it queries from the old system, 
And if it detects any change, it writes it to the stream of the new architecture. So it reads from the old API, push it to the stream. That's what makes it does. And uh, it's also fault tolerant. So uh, because of the nature of Lambda, maybe something happens. What if uh, the Lambda doesn't run? So we shouldn't, we can't afford to lose any metadata. So we wanted to make sure that we never lose anything. So we always keep track of uh, the last successful timestamp and store it somewhere in DynamoDB. And uh, next time, uh, when the Lambda runs, we continue from that point on. So we always uh, kind of uh, guaranteed that we get uh, the changes and we never lose anything. So the one interesting thing about this project, Mexit, is that uh, the whole thing was done in two or three days. So it was very quick, and uh, it's been working since then. This uh, shows how uh, Mexit connects uh, the two worlds, the old architecture, and uh, sends live production data to artists and video raw. So from that point, uh, new architecture does its job, and uh, and old architecture is not aware of this Mexit thing because uh, Mexit connects to the uh, old API just like another client, queries just like another client, and uh, uh, it's not aware of that. So uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, everything is working, so we needed to monitor this Lambda. And here uh, is a dashboard that we used uh, for monitoring uh, this uh, project. It's a data dog dashboard and uh, uh, gets its data directly from CloudWatch, Amazon CloudWatch. So the graph that you see uh, on this uh, uh, dashboard, they are uh, standard uh, Lambda metrics like invocations, uh, duration, if any error has happened, and things like that. This is pretty standard, and you need to watch these things. But uh, we needed more. So we wanted to uh, actually count how many new videos we just inserted into the system, how many artist changes we had, and things like that. So those four numbers that you see on top left of the screen uh, are custom metrics. And they are coming directly from Lambda. Uh, it's kind of interesting to know how uh, we get these numbers to Datadog. Uh, so on, in Lambda, we send these metrics, like counter, uh, to directly to CloudWatch as a custom metric. So you can see these things in CloudWatch in AWS dashboards as well. That works. But we also wanted to uh, get them in Datadog as well, everything in one place. And uh, we were able to pull those uh, custom metrics uh, from AWS CloudWatch into Datadog. So we can see everything uh, together. And uh, so Project Mexit was uh, one example of uh, lambdas that we used uh, to uh, switch to new architecture. But it was not uh, everything that we did with Lambda. So here I'm going to use about, uh, talk about uh, different uh, scenarios that we used uh, Lambda for various reasons. Uh, for example, as a scheduled task, 
or as a database trigger or user safe uh, facing services, completely front facing services, and etc. Other use cases. Uh, I'm going to talk about every one of these uh, uh, scenarios for a couple of minutes. The first one is uh, scheduled tasks. So we had some uh, use cases uh, which we uh, kind of used as a scheduled task, as a cron job with lambdas. One of the first thing that we did was uh, kind of uh, updating Elasticsearch index. So we have a Elasticsearch index, and it has uh, all artists and video metadata. And uh, whenever something changes, of course, we need to update the index or rebuild the Elasticsearch index for the changes to show up in search. So to do that, we, uh, we set up some lambdas who listen to the changes of metadata and update Elasticsearch. This was uh, uh, one use case. And the other one was, uh, I just explained, Project Mexit, which does the same thing, similar thing, but instead of updating Elasticsearch, sends it to the stream, Kinesis stream. Another uh, interesting use case was uh, uh, using lambdas for cache warming. Uh, to give you some background, uh, so we use caching for almost everything. All metadata are cached. And uh, in this case, uh, we're talking about artist images. So images are cached, no exception. Uh, and cache has a TTL. So let's say it's four hours. So the image is in cache for four hours, and then it's not. We should, it should be fetched from the origin. So that's okay for most of artists. We have like hundreds of thousands of uh, artists. That's fine. But we wanted to make, uh, uh, to keep these top artists warm in the cache. So we wanted them to be served from cache always. So we created a simple lambda, which uh, does a very simple job. Every one hour, uh, it hits uh, top 500 artist images. It just uh, it's a GET request. It sends a GET request to top 500 artists, or you can say 500 API calls. It happens every hour. So with doing that, we were able to uh, keep these 500 artists in the cache uh, forever. And of course, it's because of uh, performance improvement. Another example was uh, uh, which we used uh, scheduled tasks was project releaser. So uh, like I mentioned, every video metadata has a start date. So video might be ingested today, but it, it's not necessarily live today. It might go live next week. So every video has a start date, and that uh, defines the, the premiere time. So we wanted to uh, kind of uh, notify some services that this is time. The video went live. It's released. So we created this service releaser that does uh, polling. It checks video start date on a recurring basis again. If it's time, it just push some event to a stream to notify uh, whoever is interested about uh, new premieres. But there was a problem. So you might know uh, Lambda has a limit uh, for recurring tasks. It used to be five minutes the minimum frequency, and it's now improved. It's one minute. But uh, it was not something that we were looking for. You can imagine one minute is a long time. So 
when we say Premiere goes live at 8 a.m., it's 8 a.m. sharp. It can be 8.01 or 7.59. So we wanted to do this checking, this uh, polling, every five seconds. And uh, Lambda doesn't support five seconds. So we did a trick. Uh, what we did, we created a long-running Lambda, let's say five minutes. So a Lambda with five-minute timeout. Uh, and inside that, we start a timer. So I'm going to show you some piece of, uh, a piece of code here, uh, which tells you how this works. So there is a main timer inside the Lambda, which runs every five seconds. It's a pretty simple code, but it does the job. So every five seconds, it runs, and it processes the, the videos that they need to be published or whatever it, it's going to doing. And uh, it just works every five minutes. And this happens again and again and again until we reach the five-minute lambda timeout. Maybe one second, yeah, one second before that five-minute timeout, we stop the timer. So before lambda expires, we stop the timer, and uh, it's safe for the lambda to die. So lambda dies, and immediately another lambda uh, uh, starts and same thing happens again and again. So with this mechanism, we were able to do this kind of uh, improve the lambda frequency to five seconds. Other scenarios uh, was uh, using lambdas as database triggers. So we mainly use this uh, these kind of uh, uh, projects for not changing the source code. So we needed to do something without changing the source code. And this feature enabled us to, to do so. Uh, the very first uh, Lambda that we created at Vivo was uh, this first item that you can see here. So a little bit of uh, background story. Uh, we, have, we are storing user likes into a DynamoDB database. So whenever you like something, for example, user X likes artist Y. This is an a record in DynamoDB, and we store it. And we wanted to uh, kind of capture these likes and send it to a stream. In other words, we wanted to stream enable the like services, which was not a stream enabled. So what we did, we just listened to, uh, created the Lambda, which listens to uh, uh, database changes, create, modify, and delete, and turn it to an event to a stream. It was uh, maybe 20, 30 lines of code. Very simple, but it does the job. And uh, similar use case was uh, capturing user likes and send it to Redshift or S3 for further analysis. That was, again, another Lambda which uh, we did and uh, did the job. But one of the, the interesting things uh, that we did uh, with database triggers was uh, for replication. So uh, cross-account uh, DynamoDB replication. This was something that uh, we were told we should do for all projects, and we did it with the Lambda. So uh, for your information, we have uh, different environments, staging, dev, and production. And every environment, environment is uh, uh, hosted in a separate AWS account. So the accounts are different. 
And uh, for this project, we wanted uh, to have a copy of production data in staging environment. So we tried different uh, methods, for example, nightly backup and uh, hourly backup and restore and things like that. So the problem was that uh, they, they were uh, different accounts. They are not in the same account, staging table and production table. And we end up doing this, uh, uh, which was a lambda again. So how it works, it just listens to the changes on uh, production database, and whenever something happens, whatever it is, it's a create, update, or delete. It just writes it directly to the other table in staging account, which of course we need some uh, uh, cross-account IAM role, need some setup. But once you do this setup, the Lambda just works. And this Lambda is hosted, as you can see, in production account. So it's in production account, and count and uh, creates a copy and replica of whatever is happening in this account into staging. And we were able to do it, uh, and it works in real time, as you can imagine. It's much better than nightly backups and things like that. And uh, so it's not very specific to Vivo. You might uh, want to do the same thing. I'm going to share the source code for this uh, in a blog post maybe later. And uh, Next slide is, uh, so the, so far, uh, whatever I said was using Lambda as a kind of uh, helper or as a tool, DevOps things, and, uh, but not a service. But we actually created a service, a full feature service, microservice as well. What's called uh, Project SUSE. It's a user-facing uh, service, and as you can see, it does uh, link shortening. So you are all uh, familiar with Bitly. This is something like that. We have uh, a domain called Vivoli, which takes care of uh, Vivo short links. So every short link shortener needs to create a short link, and it needs to uh, expand it. And this project does actually a bit more. It captures the event, social events. I'll give you an example. And uh, all these things, uh, we're done with separate lambdas. So this is what happens. You create a short link uh, when you want to share something. And we attach those uh, events to the link. For example, it knows that you are a user on iOS device and you are trying to share something uh, to be shared on Twitter. And then later somebody clicks on that, but it turns out that the link was copied to Facebook, so the actual referrer was Facebook. So we track these kind of things. Uh, because of that, I can call it a smart link shortening uh, service. So it's very good to have such thing as a black box, uh, which does its job, and it's kind of independent microservice. But we were actually able to do something better. We broke it into three nano services because of Lambda, uh, which means, uh, for every single uh, feature, we had a lambda. For link shortening, uh, there is one lambda. For expanding, which means whenever somebody clicks on the link, that's another lambda. And for uh, capturing the events, again, another lambda. So if, uh, for example, for some reason, shorten goes down, you can't create a new shortening, but you can still, links always work. So links should always work. 
and expand because uh, expand is working. And uh, for this project, we use uh, uh, Lambda API Gateway and uh, DynamoDB. I'm going to show you uh, just uh, some initial design diagrams for this project and how we use the Lambda. So the first one, this slide, is uh, showing how we how user creates a short link. As you can see, uh, client just asks uh, the system to create a short link by a GET request. The request passes API gateway, and that triggers Lambda 1. Lambda 1 uh, creates a short link, but before that, it uh, uses Lambda 3 for authentication to see if the user is uh, authenticated or not. And uh, if it's okay, then uh, it just creates a short link and stores it in the database. At the same time, Lambda 0 uh, is working and capturing the events as a database trigger and sends it to the uh, Kinesis stream for other consumers. So this is how we create a short link. And the other uh, diagram is kind of similar, but uh, for expanding a short link. So this is what happens when you click on a Vivo Lee short link. Uh, you click on a link, it goes to API Gateway, and then Lambda 2. Lambda 2 queries the database for that key, and it finds the full URL with all parameters, and it sends it back to the user. And at the same time, the events is also captured with Lambda 0. As you can see, there is no uh, Lambda 1 for authentication, because not everyone can create a short link, but everyone should be able to click on a short link. So it's open. And uh, you might think that uh, it's a very simple service, which it is, and get some traffic, true. But there is a caveat here. Because of the premieres that I mentioned before, we were expecting huge traffic increase at the time of premieres. So, uh, for example, something goes live at 8 a.m., and we see a lot of clicks from uh, different places all around the world at the same time, concurrently, because uh, this is what they do. So, for example, uh, see all the greatest video, one of the last thing I remember, last hits. So she tweeted uh, this short link on her own Twitter. You can imagine millions of people can see, uh, can see that tweet and will click on that at the same time. So we expect huge traffic. And this was a concern for us to see how Lambda reacts in these cases. And this is uh, what happens. So uh, at 8 a.m. this specific day, this is a 24-hour graph. Uh, we had a premiere at 8 a.m. And you can see that regular traffic has increased 80 times. This is a huge change. And uh, not every service can tolerate such such a huge spike. But fortunately, this uh, system, it, which is Lambda-based, it uh, tolerated it, and uh, nothing went wrong, and uh, we didn't lose any user clicks or any video watch. So everybody was happy. To be honest, actually, we didn't notice that this happened. I was looking at Datadog, and I noticed, wow, what is this spike? And it was, wow, so it works. And uh, this kind of, uh, yeah, assured us this, uh, that we can rely on Lambda for uh, high traffic, even spiky traffic services. So before that point, 
We know that, okay, Lambda is a good thing, and it works, and it's very fast, rapid application development, and blah, blah, blah. But after that, we kind of uh, uh, look at it in a different way, so it's more reliable. Other use cases. Uh, we use Lambda. One of the things was uh, we wanted to uh, hit different external, external providers, so we wanted, we had some data payload and we wanted to send it to different providers. And, uh, we created Lambda for every single provider. So what Lambda does, it just massages the data and shapes it in the form that the provider requires it. And, uh, it just makes API call. And, uh, without Lambda is what's kind of, uh, difficult to do so. But, uh, we easily created, uh, different Lambdas for different providers. This was part of, uh, Project Dartmouth, which Miguel is going to talk about. And uh, one interesting thing uh, that we did recently, this is actually the last thing that we did, was Slackbot, Slack integration. To give you some history about uh, this project, uh, not everybody is an engineer in Vivo, of course. So we have content operation team. We have uh, uh, business side of the Vivo uh, who are working with uh, the content. Uh, one of the things that they want to do is uh, purging the cache on demand. Sometimes, for some reason, uh, they want to purge the cache for a specific video. For example, they want to update the view count of that video immediately for different reasons. So we have a cache processing mechanism and it works, but they want to do their own thing. So they said, we want this to be purged from the cache, fresh data to serve to the user. And we have a Slack channel actually called view count purge something. And uh, so they ask us, they ask engineering, could you please uh, remove cache, clear cache for this video? And then somebody answers them and uh, do it for them. And it's been like that for, uh, for a long time. And we thought maybe we can do better. So we created uh, this uh, Slack bot, which is actually a slash command. I'm sure you've used slash commands. Uh, we created a slash purge. So what they do, they just type slash purge and the video ID in the same Slack channel that they used to ask us. So now, nowadays they just say slash purge, slash, uh, slash purge video ISRC, which is the video ID. And that goes to Slack. And Slack is uh, calling the endpoint. That is a just REST endpoint, as you can see with API Gateway and Lambda. And that calls different APIs for cache, uh, for purging the cache in different layers. So we don't have one cache. We have different layers of caching and we need multiple API calls to, to do that. So with that project, uh, uh, they kind of became so happy that they can do it themselves in Slack, not even opening a browser or something like that. So that was very cool. With this, uh, we're coming to the end of uh, content services section. I hand it over to Miguel, who is going to tell us about uh, how they built data services. Miguel? Thank you, Alan. Yeah. That was great. Uh, it's pretty uh, incredible to think that all this new architecture was built again in one year. And I mean, how many developers? Like not even five? Yeah. 
So it's a very small team. So I think that by reusing a lot of existing a lot of existing technology, you can get very far very fast. So let's talk about building data services from scratch. So uh, when I joined Vivo, which was in November of last year, this is what the data slash analytics world looked like. So there was no data team in engineering. There was no Vivo data platform. We had no first party data, no data science, and therefore no personalization, no recommendations. Uh, the company had been using a third party product called uh, Comscore DAX for analytics. Uh, there was no continuous delivery. So this is more or less high level what it looked like from a technology perspective. Uh, this slide is important because it highlights that we have 15 plus client platforms that we need to support, including all the different connected televisions, all mobile devices, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's a lot of client platforms. So that became problematic because there had to be custom instrumentation for analytics on every platform and then ensuring that they were consistent across the board was very, very hard. So it was a little bit of a, of a mess. Uh, you can see that Comscore DAX is there. Then there was this process that would take aggregated data from Comscore and put into Redshift because it was just easier to manipulate and deal with the data within Redshift. It was really hard to get data out of Comscore DAX. And then there were some Tableau and also Looker visualizations. I don't have the Looker box in there. Um, you know, they say that um, when you're behind something, instead of playing catch-up game, you should figure out a way to jump ahead and leapfrog and see how you can get ahead. So because we're so behind data science and we didn't have any data scientists when I joined, we started thinking, well, how can we get ahead? How do we deal with this problem? So we started Project Dartmouth, and it was all about looking at third-party machine learning providers and see if we could use one to help us get our recommendations in a better state. So we looked at a few dozen companies, and out of a few dozen companies, we picked top five. I can't disclose the names of these companies, but the top five uh, machine learning companies that we found. And the thing is, is that it became really hard to figure out which company to use, because if, we, you know, you, if you look at the specs of each one of these companies, they all look great on paper. They all look fantastic on paper. We had meetings with all of these people. They're all very smart. So we started thinking, well, how can, how can the hell, you know, how can we make a decision uh, with this? So we decided to put these guys to test against each other in production. Because in production and real user data is the best way to make a data-driven decision. So we said, all right, so why don't you guys power our feed in iOS? The feed is the first thing that you see when you open up the app. It's just a list of uh, recommended videos. And we want you guys to do real-time event collection. So we'll send you data in real-time. And we need you guys to give us real-time recommendations. So whenever we request recommendations, you should give us uh, responses in real time. And we picked one KPI for them to improve because we had to come up with something. Uh, so we said, hey, look, why don't you improve swipes to clicks ratio? Maybe it wasn't the best KPI to pick, but it was something to go with. Uh, so we, we, we built this little POC of event collection, and this was done in about two weeks. So in two weeks, we're able to bring online all five machine learning companies against our production environment. So this allowed us to also test some hypotheses that we had around event, collect, event collection and a client SDK. So what we did is very quickly wrapped up this endo SDK that we, we had been working on, which is basically an abstraction for all the client platforms on top of our event collection service. This is so that you can reuse the same event collection code in all the different client platforms. We wrote this SDK in JavaScript and for native platforms, we use React Native so that this JavaScript can be interpreted in you know, platforms like Android and iOS. 
It's a little bit of a hacky thing, but it actually works pretty well. Um, then we built a event collector service within those two weeks as well. This was done in Scala um, and Spray. And, and then we started pushing all of our events in real time to Kinesis. Uh, one thing that is not showing there is also, you know, we were ingesting all the like events. And then we use Lambda as kind of a, an event router, a data router, to send the data to all these different machine learning providers in close to real time. And then we, we tweaked uh, our feed service so that it would get recommendations from all these providers instead of the code that it had before, before that. So what we did, we, did we, we segmented our audience in a very, very easy way. We just literally did mod five, right? And then you know, that gave us buckets and then we put people in different buckets, which is a very, very primitive way to segment your audience. But we needed to do this very, very fast. So that was a way to do it. Um, this is what the current data services architecture looks like. There's a lot going on there. I'm not going to go into every single thing, but I'm going to walk you through some of these things one by one. So again, talked about the cross-platform SDK that we have. That's turned out to be incredibly helpful. It gives us more consistency across events, across platforms. Um, also allows us to do some passive eventing. In other words, events that the Client developers don't have to trigger themselves, but we can just deal with them within the SDK itself. Um, and you know, now now our event collector is the most important piece of, of technology that we have out there because without event collection, then nothing else matters. So this thing has to be super reliable, super fast, and up and running all the time. So you, we have Kinesis at the heart of our of our uh, data nervous system. Uh, like Alan was saying earlier, we have all these services producing data and then all these other services consuming data. Because we're the data and analytics team, we like to hog all the data so we consume data from everybody and we bring it into, into our environment. Um, Alan talked a little bit about this, but I'm gonna go a little deeper into this. So, you know, we wanted this environment where data is democratized and can be shared across all services, between all services. But we had to have a way to give it structure so it wasn't just like, you know, craziness. So we had to come up with the service-to-service -service contract methodology. Uh, we decided to go with JSON because it's a lot easier to deal with in general. We looked at other technologies like Avro and uh, Protobufs, and JSON turned out to be the, the, the selection. I think, honestly, any one of these technologies would have worked fine. But, you know, to reach consensus across organization, we picked JSON. Um, so we decided that all entities that are going to write to Kinesis Stream must have a schema. You can't send data to Kinesis in vivo if you don't have a scheme associated with this data. Um, and there's kind of two methodologies that you can use. You can either send full payloads with the entire uh, entity that is being created or modified, or you can send a message saying, hey, there's a new entity or there's a newly modified entity, go find the payload over here. And it could be against the API of that service producing the data. And uh, we made a kind of a rule that the data, the, the data has to be pushed to Kinesis at the moment of creation or at the moment of modification, so we have a close to real-time system. So we have a central repository for schemas. We, just, we debated uh, about this a little bit, but we decided that all schemas should go into a central repo, so that way we have visibility as to what new entities are coming through. That's a very s simple sample schema that I put in there just so you get a better idea. That's the schema that supports the like event. So whenever you like something, an artist, for instance, there's a like event that goes with it. So you know that, that schema contains some metadata about the user and the entity that the user is trying to like. 
Um, so as far as so that's data collection, that's event collection. Now, as far as data processing and analytics, we use currently, and this is going to change over time. But currently, we use Spark for most of our data processing. Um, we use Spark for real-time analytics. Most of the data that we generate, most of the metrics we calculate, don't have to do it in real time. We don't have to do that in real time. Um, it's really just play counts and completion rates that we calculate in, in real time. Um, we also use Spark for batch processing. So we have these periodic ETL jobs that run, um, and that's also based on Spark. And we're also using Spark for submachine learning, mainly to train models. Um, there's some experimentation happening right now with the team using TensorFlow and Spark. Uh, all the Spark work that we do is with EMR. We decided to not go ahead and create our own um, Spark clusters. It's a lot easier to just manage through EMR. Plus, you know, it's very easy. If something bad happens, you can just tear down the cluster, bring it back up, and it's no problem. So it's a lot easier to manage. Um, and then we use S3 as our long-term storage place. Uh, so all of the data that we collect and generate goes into S3. Uh, and then we use Redshift for analytics. So after our ETL process is run and we generate metrics and we kind of spread the data into a dimensional model, um, then we put all of that into our analytics warehouse, which is Redshift. And then all the data is consumed from there by people outside of our team. So people consume data via Tableau via Looker, and just SQL. Uh, it's actually quite fascinating because we've been teaching our product managers to uh, write SQL, and they've been very excited, and they've become incredibly productive because now they can go ahead and do their own analysis and not depend on a centralized BI team. So uh, one of the big goals that we had when we started all of this was to truly democratize data within Vivo, make it accessible to everybody without needing a centralized group to manage it for them. Now, that said, that we, when we... Once we know that something needs to be upgraded as, as like a source of truth when it comes to data, then we'll create a looker visualization for it. So we'll create a dashboard and you know, there's kind of this section that we're calling the official uh, looker dashboard section. And you, you know that if you're looking at a report from there, it's been fully vetted, fully QA, and that's a source of truth. But before that, you have to go through a lot of experimentation. Um, so kind of like a recap, right? So we have data collection on one side, on the right side here. Uh, you see that everything goes through our event collector. Uh, you can see that there's some data being processed in real, in real time there by Spark, you know, being consumed from the Kinesis stream. Uh, we have this thing that we call the event publisher, which then pushes some of this data into this user behavior Aurora database. This Aurora database exists because we feed consumer experiences, so of course, you know, we can't do that from Redshift. We can't do that from S3. So Aurora scales really, really, really well. So we decided to use Aurora for the front-facing services. So you see a bunch of front-facing services there, um, which mainly uh, serve data that comes from Aurora. Uh, you can see the feed service there that I talked about earlier. Uh, there's a, a recommendation service that powers the feed and people recommendations as well. You can see that on the batch side of things over there we have spark uh, with airflow for etl um, then we have spark below for machine learning as well you see the picture that i showed earlier where you know we have our bi tools that people use to interact with the data then everything above is stuff outside of our domain so we see the third-party uh, services that we interact with and then all the other vivo services that generate data that then we consume 
so this turned out to be a pretty, um, even though there's a lot of boxes, a lot of errors, actually a pretty sweet architecture. It's pretty flexible. I mean, it's allowed us to move things around in many different ways. And this will continue to evolve, of course. Um, so now let's talk about the lessons learned. Yep. Want to go? Okay. Lessons. So uh, Lambda is great, but it's not all <laughs> cupcakes and rainbows. So uh, one of the things that we experienced very first uh, days was that uh, we need a framework. You can't just deploy Lambdas manually. Uh, if you do so, you can, of course, but it will turn to a mess quickly. Trust me. Uh, so uh, you always need a framework with Lambdas, and we used serverless, uh, which is a pretty cool framework, and uh, we are happy with that. I recommend to use it if you're using Lambda. And we also were able to uh, integrate this uh, serverless framework with our CI/CD uh, framework. Uh, another thing was uh, throttled invocations. You might be aware of that, that uh, there is a limit for concurrent runs on Lambda. It's by default 100. So 100 Lambdas can run at the same time. Uh, the next one just fails, gets throttled. And it's per account, it's not per Lambda. So you should always monitor that thing uh, to make sure that you don't get throttled. And if uh, this happens, it's an easy fix. You just ask Amazon to increase your limit. And uh, this is what we did. And uh, the other thing was uh, the famous cold start issue. Uh, for those who are not aware of this thing, Lambda, when it runs for the first time, it takes some startup time. And uh, next time, it just fast, it runs the code. But for the first time, it's kind of slow. So if you're using Lambda uh, behind a user-facing uh, service, the first request might get a timeout, which is not good. So uh, we fixed this issue with uh, keeping the Lambda warm. So uh, just setting a five-minute scheduled uh, call on the same Lambda helped. So it keeps it warm always and never experienced the cold start issue. Other things was, uh, as we explained, standardize what goes on the stream, which helps a lot. And having uh, a central place for all the stream schemas, uh, that, that's also helpful. Because uh, let's say you have a new hire and uh, you give it a task, give him or her a task to consume this stream, consume the data events from this stream. All he or she needs to do is just go into that repo and uh, having uh, known the stream name, just find the schema for that stream. And then they know what to expect uh, as a event for that stream. It's very helpful. And we did the same thing for error messages. Uh, having same uh, central place for all error messages from all services was very helpful. And uh, other lessons? So these are some of the lessons that we learned on the data side. I mean, you've probably heard this many, many times, but I mean, it's something I keep relearning over and over again in my career. Don't try to boil the ocean all at once. As you saw, we started small with the event collection system, and then we started moving to data processing versus trying to build a little bit of everything at the same time. Uh, this is something we learned with Project Dartmouth. Use real user data to make decisions. I mean, it was so... It, without Project Dartmouth, we probably would have picked the wrong machine learning provider. Uh, maybe not, who knows, but it would have been like at luck. 
Uh, so always look at real user data. Reuse as much technology versus build. I mean, especially in the world we live now with all the services that Amazon provides, for instance. Uh, you know, there's so much to reuse, so don't try to build things yourself. Uh, and then if you're serious about analytics and data, because there's so much infrastructure already in place, build your own platform. I mean, nowadays it's not as hard as it used to be. I'm not saying that it's easy either, but I mean, it's possible. I mean, you saw like all the stuff that we built in one year. And that was a small team. That was a four-person development team that built the data platform in one year. So there's a lot that you, if you have the right people, you have the right infrastructure, you're using the right cloud technology, you can do a lot. And I believe that's it. Thank you very much. If there is any question, uh, feel free to use the mics. Uh, if there are any questions, there's some mics there. So feel free to just reach a mic. And please don't forget to uh, do the evaluation. We appreciate it.